Are you now or have you ever been a Trump supporter? The January 6th riot was ugly and violent. It was one of the worst things to happen to this country after one of its most difficult years. Protests are the voices of the unheard. The MAGA supporters who gathered in D.C. that day were exercising their First Amendment right to protest at their capital. At the same time, agitators near the capital were whipped up into a frenzy, believing they had a patriotic duty to stop the election of Joe Biden. The footage was proof at last of what the Democrats had been warning the country about. The white supremacist terrorist uprising had finally come to pass. It would also turn out to be the most important piece of political propaganda in over 50 years that would hand absolute power to those who sought to remove Trump the minute he was elected. It was not, however, an attempted coup or an insurrection. For one thing, Trump was the sitting president on January 6th. If anything, they were trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. They were, in their own minds, trying to stop a coup, not launch one. Whatever fantasies drove people like Ashley Babbitt to become desperate enough that they would sacrifice their own lives is only used to further stoke the flames of hatred and division by our government. That the media, the blue checks on Twitter, and the political opposition have declared it an insurrection without due process is yet another sign that we no longer have a working media. But we already knew that. Most Americans know something bad happened on January 6th. Many believe Trump was responsible. But everyone knows what these hearings are for. To stop Trump's movement from overtaking the GOP getting into Congress, and perhaps recapturing the presidency in 2024. The thing that scares them the most is that Trump might actually win if he did run in 2024. The Democrats have made such a mess of things, turning this country into a dystopian nightmare, that Trump is the preferred option, even after the January 6th hearings began. One of the reasons Donald Trump remains popular is that he's not afraid to mock the powerful, He's called the media the enemy of the people. He destroyed the presidential prospects of Bush's golden child, Jeb. He wrecked Hillary Clinton's chances of being the first female president and knocked down the carefully constructed utopia Obama built. Trump is public enemy number one. After months of extremely violent riots alongside the Black Lives Matter protests where the politicians who won in 2020 addressed their complaints and completely reordered American society, The January 6th rioters probably thought they would be considered and treated the same way. A year later, hundreds of prisoners have been dumped Gitmo-style into solitary confinement in the D.C. jail, many without charges brought against them, enduring all manner of torments to get them to name Trump as their instigator. Where are the reporters writing about this? Where is the ACLU or civil rights attorneys fighting for their rights as American citizens? As with all things in the post-2020 world, they dare not say a word about it lest they be accused of being racist apologists and domestic terrorist sympathizers. Also, they see them as they always have seen them, human garbage at best, terrorists at worst. The January 6th select committee hearings are dressed up to look like Watergate. Authoritative, serious, definitive. But they are not a good faith effort to uncover the truth about that day. Rather, they are about naming Trump and his movement as anti-American, which justifies their ongoing marginalization of the non-compliant that makes them much more like the McCarthy hearings at the point where the senator had gone too far. 
Since Trump shocked the country with a surprise win, the idea that a racist could win after Obama's two terms was an existential threat that sent this country reeling. Mass hysteria bloomed in the wake of 2016, and after 2020, there were ongoing witch hunts to root out racists on Twitter, in higher education, in science labs, in fiction, in movies. It was bound to make its way into government, and now, because these committee hearings are making them not about the riot on January 6th, but the presumed ideology behind the riot, white rage. We have another witch hunt on our hands that looks a lot like 1954. I think we should keep in mind when we refer to Democrats, we refer to the administration, that there are definitely two groups of Democrats as of today. Number one, there are the millions of loyal Americans who have voted the Democrat ticket. Individuals who are just as loyal, who hate communism just as much, and love America just as much as the average Republican. That's one group. On the other hand, there is that small, closely knit group of administration Democrats who are now the complete prisoners and under the complete domination of the bureaucratic, communistic Frankenstein which they themselves have created. Ladies and gentlemen, they shouldn't be called that administration Democrat party. To call them Democrats is an insult to the millions of loyal American Democrats. They shouldn't be called Democrats. They should be referred to properly as the Commie-Crap Party. Joseph McCarthy was not wrong about the communist threat. All of these decades later, it's clear there were spies in our government. There were screenwriters trying to inject that ideology into our culture. Eisenhower shut it down because McCarthy had become paranoid that anyone and everyone might be a communist including members of the military. Ike recognized that it was making the post-World War II America weaker, not stronger. That is why he helped destroy McCarthy's credibility and end what we now call McCarthyism. It's hard to police the minds and hearts of Americans in a supposedly free society. Here we are decades later and that communist threat is alive and well and has all but consumed the Democratic Party yet again. But you won't see a witch hunt about that, at least not yet. Trump's America First Party is a threat to the established order. The problem is they are sloppily applying white supremacy to that movement. That is why the January 6th hearings feel more like McCarthyism than they do Watergate. Even before Trump won, his supporters had already been spit on, beaten, dehumanized by the public, whether it was mocking their makeup or age, weight, hair, or education, chasing them out of restaurants, to physically assaulting them, all because the media and the politicians had convicted them of being racist, which in the wake of the Obama era is the absolute worst thing you could be. Here's an example from the run-up to the 2016 election. None of that breaking news overnight, those violent clashes at Donald Trump's rally in California. You see those protesters there, they attacked Trump supporters just after Trump spoke, and ABC's Tom Yamas was there. He's on the scene now in San Jose. Good morning, Tom. George, this was one of the most violent scenes I have ever witnessed at a Trump rally. At times, it seemed like the police had no control of the situation. People were getting beat up right in front of them. And these were not clashes. These were pure attacks. Trump supporters, men, women, even the elderly, left this building last night and walked right into danger. 
overnight all-out brawls outside the Trump rally in San Jose, California. Trump supporters harassed, beaten, and bloodied by mobs of protesters. They were like spitting on me and stuff. This man says he was sucker punched, his clothes torn off his back. Seven more people just come in and start punching me. Carl, I look pretty bad. This lone female Trump supporter tried to stand her ground. Her sign torn from her hands, her glasses ripped off, then shoved in her face. A woman wearing a Trump jersey cornered and then egged in the face. Fights breaking out in the streets all over the convention. Inside, Trump spoke to a large and welcoming crowd. We're going to build that wall, don't even think about it. But outside, protesters accused Trump of being a racist and hunted down the people that support him. Another fist fight's about to break out right now. The Trump supporter is getting pummeled right now. That man eventually fighting his way back to police. At another point, protesters followed this couple, violently harassing them, then storming the parking lot where they tried to escape. Protesters shaking cars and smashing taillights. Drivers forced to hit the gas to get out. Police were there, armed in riot gear, but from what we witnessed, reluctant to initially stop or engage the protesters. Then this, a young man running in fear from protesters, then getting tackled before breaking free. We point him to police. There's a cop over there. This Trump supporter walking with his wife, spat on, bottles thrown at them, then punches. He says it was the only way he could get out. What am I going to do? Ten people throwing punches at me. Now, there were some peaceful demonstrators last night, but many of the people we saw were young men and young women who were here to do only one thing, which is to throw... We begin with several developing stories here on a Friday night. First, the violent and bloody clashes outside a Donald Trump event. Protesters attacking Trump supporters. Those supporters were attacked as they left the convention center in San Jose overnight. Some punched, some chased down and beaten. Others had bottles thrown at them. And just a short time ago, Donald Trump addressing the violence. ABC's Tom Yamas is in California. Tonight, Donald Trump condemning the protesters behind those bloody attacks on his supporters. They walk out and they get accosted by a bunch of thugs burning the American flag. And you know what they are? They're thugs. Anti-Trump protesters hunting down the very people who back Trump. It never seems to have occurred to the media or the most powerful elites that smearing a whole group of people as racist might not be healthy for American democracy in a culture that tightly policed thought and behavior even before it reached its climax in 2020. Trump's freedom to say whatever he wanted and mock whomever he wanted represented a clear and present danger to the utopian left. It was never about what Trump did, it was always about what he said. Even January 6th isn't so much about what they did, it's much more about why they did it. All points lead back to Trump. They believe January 6th was about race because they believe Trump's MAGA movement is racist. They believe Trump's rise was a direct result of the nation's first black president, just as they believed the Tea Party was racist. It was just something everyone believed because the media cherry-picked imagery and clips from various speeches and rallies that were meant to prove all of them were racist. At some point, it just wasn't a question. The only problem is that it isn't true. The Trump movement has always been about class, not race. 
It's about the American people who were left behind after that giant sucking sound that evacuated jobs and nearly wrecked the middle class. The left now cares only about the most privileged and the least privileged. They don't seem to care much about the ones in the middle, the farmers, the truck drivers, the bartenders, small business owners. How do I know Trump's America First movement is not about race? Because I made the effort to get to know that world. I went looking for the smoking gun because I did not like belonging to a group that was dehumanizing another group. I never found the version of Trump the left believes exists. For instance, Steve Bannon and the MAGA movement have been deliberately and actively recruiting black and Hispanic voters for at least six years. Bannon calls it inclusive nationalist populism. It's not about race. It's about a global worldview versus a nationalistic one. Somehow the Democrats and the media seem to have missed this part of the story because it doesn't fit the narrative. That's not to say there aren't white supremacists in this country. They are a real threat, as we've recently seen in Buffalo, New York. But what the government and the media are trying to do, label Trump and his movement as white supremacists without proof, is reminiscent of the McCarthy era. What really happened on January 6th? The select committee looks more like a show trial than a good faith effort to uncover the truth. During Stalin and Mao's communist regimes, they counted on show trials to scare citizens into silence and compliance. Here we have major media outlets and government officials repeating the false notion that it was an insurrection driven by white rage. If this were a serious committee in search of the truth of what happened on January 6th, the following questions would be addressed. One, how many people knew that there was a threat to the Capitol before January 6th and when did they know it? Polls show even those who believe Trump was responsible want to know the answer to this question. Granted, bringing this up to anyone on the left means you'll get two responses. The first, you are a conspiracy theorist. And the second is to rationalize it somehow. General Milley was worried about the protests. The FBI had to know. The mayor of D.C. knew. How could the most powerful country in the world with the most powerful military in the world have put the Capitol Police in such a vulnerable spot that day? Two. What, if any, was the FBI's involvement? I know, I know, Rachel Maddow would not approve of anyone daring to ask this question. But so far, there hasn't been an adequate explanation. Why was Stuart Rhodes only charged a year later when he was the ringleader of the Oath Keepers' plan to stop the certification of the vote? Why is Ray Epps still not charged, even though he is on tape telling Trump supporters to go into the Capitol? In fact, tomorrow... I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. Well, let's not say it. We need, we need to go, I'll say it. We need to go in to the Capitol. Let's go! Plenty of other people who never entered the Capitol have been arrested. If the government's overreaction is so extreme, arresting anyone and everyone involved in the so-called insurrection, why not Epps? From Julie Kelly's book, January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right, she says, In the early 1990s, the FBI accelerated its focus on the white Christian right after the events at Waco, Texas and Ruby Ridge. The FBI launched PATCON, short for Patriot Conspiracy, an alleged movement of Christian extremists. In one case, the FBI created a fictional right-wing militia group to use it as an organ to collect information about other suspected militia members. 
The tactics of FBI agents infiltrating militias as well as well-paid informants being coerced into spying on these groups, and in some instances, even providing the means and encouragement to carry out violent plots before being arrested, have been criticized as constituting entrapment by using agent provocateurs, agents posing as criminals to justify the financial and social expenses of counter-terrorism, a 2011 study published in Rutgers University concluded. Was this the case with January 6th, she writes? A small handful of journalists not buying into the groupthink of January 6 started raising more red flags. In June, Revolver News, a new website founded by Darren Beatty, a former aide to Donald Trump, published a lengthy report raising questions about the number of unindicted co-conspirators in the Oath Keepers case, including Stuart Rhodes. Was this the case with January 6? Kelly explains how Stuart Rhodes was widely accepted as person one in the multi-defendant case and was, by all accounts, calling the shots, she continues. But nine months after the first arrests, he is still a free man. Given Stuart Rhodes' actions and words leading up to and on January 6th, and given that Rhodes is the leader of the major militia group associated with January 6th, the Oath Keepers, why no indictment for Rhodes, Beatty asked. Citing similarities to the Gretchen Whitmer case, Beattie continued, If it turns out that an extraordinary percentage of the members of these groups involved in planning and executing the Capitol siege were federal informants or undercover operatives, the implication would be nothing short of staggering. This would be far worse than the already bad situation of the government knowing about the possibility of violence and doing nothing. Instead, this would imply that elements of the federal government were active instigators in the most egregious and spectacular aspects of January 6th, amounting to a monumental entrapment scheme used as a pretext to imprison otherwise harmless protesters at the Capitol, and in a much larger sense used to frame the entire MAGA movement as potential domestic terrorists. All of those arrested in connection with Rhodes have been charged with various crimes. You can read those names here, and you can look up their charges here. Here are the 11 charged with seditious conspiracy in a graphic I pieced together from the government's site. The graphic shows the name of those charged, and it shows what they are charged with. Of these 11, only two have pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy, Joshua James and Brian Ulrich. Julie Kelly continues her convincing case against Rhodes. Rhodes then gave an interview which seemed more like damage control to the New York Times that revealed he had been interviewed by the FBI in May. Against the advice of a lawyer, Mr. Rhodes spoke freely with the agents about the Capitol assault for nearly three hours. Reporter Alan Fuhrer wrote in the July 9 article, Rhodes told Fuhrer that his underlings had gone off mission and that he was frustrated so many entered the building. Prosecutors overseeing the investigation of Mr. Rhodes have long admitted that they have struggled to make a case against him. His activities seem to stay within the boundaries of the First Amendment, one official with knowledge of the matter said. But Rhodes' posts and texts before January 6 were highly inflammatory and contradicted his portrayal in the Times. Further, the argument that his online activity and his conduct that day he did not enter the building, but neither did dozens of other protesters nonetheless charged for various crimes, were protected by the First Amendment, also contradicted the government's stance that the events of January 6 rose to the crime of insurrection, not a legitimate political protest. That certainly wasn't the case for Thomas Caldwell, one of the Oath Keepers arrested and indicted, who also did not enter the building. 
Darren Beatty followed up his initial reports with an updated piece in October that summarized the Justice Department's nine-month prosecution of the Oath Keepers. Rhodes, Beatty explained, established the conspiracy, recruited the people involved, gave instructions including the use of illegal weapons, and activated the conspiracy, including the entrance into the building in a stack formation that afternoon. Still, Rhodes remains uncharged. It took them nine months to finally arrest Rhodes and to come up with the seditious conspiracy charge to lend some heft to their unprecedented treatment of political prisoners who were American citizens protesting against the establishment. The only answer from the media on any of this is to ridicule anyone who would dare ask. It's all a right-wing conspiracy theory to them. Ironically, they did the same thing to Woodward and Bernstein when they were investigating Watergate as the film All the President's Men illustrates. Let me tell you what happened today. I was having lunch at the Sand Suit Sea. This White House guy, a good one, a pro, came up and asked, what is this Watergate compulsion with you guys? Compulsion? I I story. This is not compulsion. I said, well, we think it's important. And he said, if it's so goddamn important, who in the hell are Woodward and Bernstein? Now, what do you expect him to say from the White House? You're doing a great job? Yeah, I... Now, why don't you ask him what he's really saying? He wants to take the, the, the story away from Woodstein and, and uh, give it to... At least I have some dice. experienced guys sitting around who know the politicians who have the contacts. We're aware of exactly what you, like you said it, sitting around. Dan, it's a dangerous story for this paper. What if your boys get it wrong? Then it's our ass, isn't it? Well, we all have to go out and work for a living. Yeah. Right, <laughs> National gets eight columns, nine for foreign, metro, 15. That's it, folks. Okay. Good good work. Hey, Scott, we've seen How dangerous. Well, it's not just that we're using unnamed sources that bothers me. Or that everything we print, the White House denies. Or that almost no other papers are reprinting our stuff. Okay. Look, there are over 2,000 reporters in this town. Are there five on Watergate? Where did the Washington Post suddenly get the monopoly on wisdom? Why would the Republicans do it? McGovern is self-destructing, just like Humphrey, Muskie, the bunch of them. I don't believe the story doesn't make sense. The New York Times, along with all media outlets on the left, are working overtime to disprove any FBI involvement and did clear up at least one part of the Ray Epps story that he whispered into the ear of someone just before he breached the Capitol. According to this story, that isn't true, but FBI informants are under no obligation to reveal their identities. Epps remains uncharged, even though he can be seen on video telling Trump supporters that they must go into the Capitol. Of course, no one trusts the media anymore, and why would they? It's hard to know what is true and what isn't. But the point is, something looks fishy about Epps and Rhodes regarding January 6th. If they don't trust the media, they most definitely don't trust the FBI. But those are the questions that should be asked by journalists whose jobs are to hold the powerful to account. 3. What happened to Ashley Babbitt? Writing for Spectator, Peter Van Buren asks, when will the committee start showing the video of her being shot by Capitol Police? Babbitt, wearing a Trump flag like a cape, was one of the rioters who smashed the glass on the door leading to the Speaker's lobby of the Capitol. 
a plain-clothed Capitol Police officer fired a shot and Babbitt fell into the crowd and died. It was the only shot fired at the riot. A SWAT team just behind Babbitt saw the situation differently and never fired on her or those with her. Babbitt was unarmed and was not resisting arrest because the cops never got that far. He just shot her. He adds another question that needs addressing. Why and on whose order did Capitol Police allow 300 people to simply walk into the building without resistance on the afternoon of January 6th? And who was the man in a bicycle helmet whom video shows initiating the window smashing that ended in the shooting of Ashley Babbitt? Why was he welcomed behind police lines once things got out of hand? There were supposedly pipe bombs placed in buildings in D.C., where there were plenty of security cameras. What happened to that investigation? Julie Kelly on Twitter also asks the following question. And that noose, no one charged for erecting gallows on Capitol property, no video of who constructed it, and no results of FBI investigation. An insurrection or a violent riot? When communist revolutionaries shot up the Capitol in 1954, they were charged with seditious conspiracy for fighting for Puerto Rico's independence. The sentencing read, This case makes it clear that these people and their followers have nothing but contempt for our laws, our courts, and our public officials. Eisenhower strengthened the seditious conspiracy laws after he had quietly, behind the scenes, put an end to McCarthyism. He wrote while signing the law, The American people are determined to protect themselves and their institutions against any organization in their midst which, purporting to be a political party within the normally accepted meaning, is actually a conspiracy dedicated to the violent overthrow of our entire form of government. One could easily make the argument that the uprisings over the summer were also political movements that sought to violently overthrow the U.S. government, or that the hashtag resistance was a four-year-long coup to remove Trump that ended with the 2020 election. No one actually sees it that way because this moment in history is being written solely by one side. But if we had an objective, honest press, they would see that the violent protests against our government by the left are never seen as seditious or treasonous. Rather, they're applauded and admired, or they're simply ignored. Most of the political violence in our country's recent history has come from the left, not the right. You can't tell me if it had been Democratic activists who breached the Capitol, they would be treated the same way. Julie Kelly writes of the Kavanaugh hearing, The siege of government buildings escalated. Republican senators were angrily confronted in elevators and outside government buildings. Some received death threats. The outrage was heavily fueled by Democratic leaders, including Senator Elizabeth Warren. Hello, resistance, Warren shouted to the raucous crowd assembled outside on October 4th. I am angry on behalf of women who have been told to sit down and shut up one too many times. This is about hijacking our democracy. Thousands heeded Warren's call for action. We were planning to shut down the Capitol building, but the authorities were so scared of this hashtag women's wave that they shut it down for us, the official account of the Women's March tweeted that day. 1,000 plus women, survivors, and allies have gathered in the Hart Senate building, every hallway, every floor. When Pence announced on the afternoon of October 6, 2018, that Kavanaugh's nomination was confirmed, women shouted from the Senate gallery and were removed. The D.C. Circuit is often referred to as the second second highest court in the land because it hears many involving agency action and the separation of powers. 
During his time on the bench, Judge Kavanaugh has heard over a thousand cases. He's written more than 300 opinions. His opinions span nearly 5,000 pages in length. But what are, what's remarkable about Judge Kavanaugh's judicial record? Law firms have a lot of names. There are a lot of people who work at a lot of law firms. And he helped me get ready for a Supreme Court argument. Mr. Chairman, I therefore move to adjourn this hearing. Okay. judge never a, a, a good judge never bases decisions on his preferred policy preferences you volunteer in your community uh, mr. chairman last order Kavanaugh is one of the most distinguished judges mr. chairman I think we ought to have this this loudmouth removed I mean we know we shouldn't have to put up with this kind of stuff I hope she's not a loster. There is no possible way we can expect this witness to know who populates uh, an, an entire firm. That he's not My point of order, Mr. Chairman, is simply this. So. Mr. Mr. Chairman, I don't know that the committee should have to put up with this type of insolence that's going on in this in this room today. Good. And frankly, uh, these people are so out of line they shouldn't even be allowed in the doggone room. The nation was roiled by the Kavanaugh fiasco for more than a month, yet activists opposed to his nomination were considered heroes, not villains by the nation's news media. The violence at the Capitol was unusual for Trump supporters because if there was one point of superiority they had over the left, it's that they were the nonviolent side. They weren't boarding up windows on election night because they thought Biden would win. They did it because they knew if Trump had won, cities would burn. Now, because of January 6th, they've completely flipped the script. The formerly nonviolent Trump supporters are the violent protesters, not the left. The formerly cop-hating Democrats are now the side that suddenly cares about the Capitol Police. 
Footage of the Capitol breach has been played over and over and over again, nonstop. By contrast, the media barely covered the riots over the summer. Armed with nothing but a fire extinguisher, 70-year-old Robert Cobb tried to defend his friend Sue's shop from a group of arsonists and looters Monday night. They just threw a bottle at this guy. The whole thing was caught on camera. We want to warn our viewers, it's difficult to watch. Fresh from a double bypass surgery, Robert was standing guard until someone punched him so hard in the face that he collapsed to the sidewalk. I, I can't. I, I can't. And I can't even think about how bad it could have been. I mean, it's bad enough. They broke his jaw. Robert playfully dodged our cameras most of the day because he said he wants the story to be about how much the Kenosha community loves his friend Sue. It's funny because Sue said the story is about Robert's bravery. Either way, their reunion was beautiful. Robert's jaw was broken in two places and he went in for surgery this afternoon. She's my rock, my inspiration. Even though their shop is rubble. We will rebuild. And These owners say they found a silver lining in the violence and destruction that's ravaged their community. And that break in the clouds is a lifelong friend. This is stuff. I mean, it's devastating. It was my livelihood, a lot of memories, a lot of, you know, but, but it's, it's just stuff. I can't replace that man. That man's not just stuff. Almost three days later, the building is still smoking. The owners tell me they want to rebuild in a different location, but it's too soon to know the timeline. The Danish Brotherhood next door has invited them to move with them to be their neighbors again when they rebuild. The fact is that the left can be as violent as they want, as insistent and demanding of their rights as they want, to fight for the country they want, be as intrusive of public spaces as they want, all because they are protected by the media and the blue-check Twitter who are ideologically aligned with them. Trump supporters aren't even considered human beings, let alone American citizens with those same rights. The 2020 election was unprecedented in the alliance of big tech, big media, and big money. It was the most expensive election in history. When you're talking about that much power and that much money, what else do you have except your right to protest? Whose big lie is it exactly? You can't talk about January 6th without talking about 2020. You can't talk about 2020 without talking about 2016. I plan on writing a different piece about these two elections, but for now it's important to remember what 2020 was, a reaction to 2016. In the 2016 election, the Trump team had a very specific strategy to keep people home in specific swing states and win a slim electoral college victory by a few hundred thousand votes. They used Facebook almost exclusively to target three groups to keep them home on election day. Black males, using Clinton's super predator comments, young feminists, Bill Clinton's sexual misconduct allegations, and Bernie Sanders supporters who believe the establishment had rigged the primary against Bernie. Facebook allowed Trump's team to micro-target these specific groups in the key swing states. Hillary Clinton's team was offered the same help, but they'd turned it down. She was going for a landslide victory, focusing on winning states like Georgia. Trump's strategy worked. Zuckerberg was largely blamed for putting Trump in power, as was the media. Both major players would make up for that in 2020, with $400 million from Zuckerberg to fortify elections for both sides, supposedly. 
It really only helped Democrats because they were the side with an enthusiasm gap. Trump's side never had an enthusiasm gap and still doesn't. Trump made a strategic error in convincing his supporters to distrust voting machines and save their votes for election day. No matter how many of them showed up, there was no way they could close the gap with the massive landslide of ballots Democrats already had collected. 2020 made it clear that the media was using its power to swing an election. All of this was bragged about in Time magazine. They patted themselves on the back for using all their money and resources to remove one person from power and install another. The Time magazine headline uses the word bipartisan, the same way January 6th committee does, to send the not-so-subtle message that Trump supporters are not welcome in American democracy. Here is Ben Shapiro saying as much. This election was not fair. It was not fair specifically because the media have formed a triumvirate along with their friends in the Democratic Party and in social media to suppress information they don't want you to see and to push narratives that are simply untrue. So I want to go through some of those with you today because it really is true that were the media less biased, were the media even close to the objective observer of facts that they pretend that they are, Donald Trump would have won this election going away, not just because the economy was booming up until COVID, but because all of the narratives that the media focused on were overtly false. Okay, so first, we got to talk a little bit about how the system works. Okay, so you have, as I say, this triumvirate. You have the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party formulates the message. The message is always that Republicans are responsible for everything. Now, in that way, they're no different than the Republican Party would be on the other side, right? The Democrats are responsible for everything. The difference is the Democratic Party has in its pocket the mainstream media, 93% by last polling data, 93% of people in newsrooms say they vote Democrat. You cannot find a single Trump supporter anywhere at the New York Times. They do not exist. You can't find a single Trump voter anywhere on the air at CNN, unless they're being paid as sort of the, the straw man to beat up. They just don't exist. The editorial hierarchy and most of our establishment media institutions, they just do, they, they don't include anybody who is to the right of Hillary Clinton. Just does not exist. Well, what that means is that they just repeat all the Democratic talking points. And then the Democratic Party and the media combine to pressure the one arena in American life where there is supposed to be free and open dissemination of information. Typically, conservatives have fought back against liberal media dominance by building their own institutions, right? We built Daily Wire here, right? We built the Ben Shapiro show. Daily Caller exists. Breitbart exists. Blaze TV exists. Fox News exists. And all of these exist in an arena, particularly online, of free distribution of information. And social media made that possible, right? Facebook made that possible and Twitter made that possible. So Democrats and the media fought back. And the way they fought back is by working with woke staffers inside these big tech companies in order to suppress messages they don't like and to suppress outlets they don't like. And so there is this game where members of the media basically start suggesting, along with members of the Democratic Party, that even the free and open dissemination of information on social media is in fact Russian disinformation. It's promulgating lies to the American public. And so they hijack these supposed platforms, and then they turn the platforms into distribution mechanisms only for their own narratives and only for their own messages. And they shut down and suppress all of the other messages and narratives and facts presented by the other side, even if those facts are true. So it never made sense to me that Trump would have planned a violent riot when he believed Mike Pence, Josh Hawley, and Ted Cruz were going to convince Congress to stop the count and sift through voting regulations that had been suddenly changed due to COVID and whether or not the ballots were legal. All the violent riot did was wreck his case and hand absolute power to his enemies. To understand how you get to a rally on January 6th, let alone a riot, it's necessary to understand how the frustration built up over the past six years. Trump was not treated like the President of the United States, not for one minute, not for a day, in his four years in power. 
He was always treated like an imposter, a cockroach to be exterminated from the establishment so his human garbage supporters could disappear back into the hinterlands. A podcaster named Daryl Cooper wrote a now-famous tweet thread that lays it out, but it was when Tucker Carlson read the whole thing on Fox News that millions of people heard it. Our media and government would be smart to pay attention to this. Podcaster called Daryl Cooper wrote a remarkable series of tweets in which he tried to explain why so many Trump voters believed the last election was rigged. Really smart. He crystallized it. We like to read some of it now. Quote, here are the facts, actual confirmed facts that shape the perspective of Trump voters. The FBI spied on the 2016 Trump campaign using evidence manufactured by the Clinton campaign. We now know that all involved knew it was fake from day one. The voters this was aimed at are Tea Party people, the type who give their kids a pocket constitution for their birthday and have founding fathers memes in their bios. The intel community spying on a presidential campaign using fake evidence, including forged documents, is a big deal to them. Trump supporters know the collusion case front and back. They went from worrying the collusion must be real to suspecting it might be fake to realizing it was a scam and then watched as every institution, the intel agencies, the press, Congress, academia, gaslit them for another year. Worse, collusion was used to scare away good people from working in the Trump administration. They knew their entire lives would be investigated. Many quit because they were being bankrupted by legal fees. The DOJ, the press, and the government destroyed lives and actively subverted an elected administration. This is where people whose political identity was largely defined by a naive belief in what they learned in civics class began to see the outline of a regime that had crossed all institutional boundaries. That regime stepped out of the shadows to unite against an interloper, Donald Trump. A lot of Trump supporters understand this regime is not partisan. They know that the same institutions would have taken opposite sides if it was a Tulsi Gabbard versus Jeb Bush election. It's hard to describe to people on the left how shocking and disillusioning this was for conservatives, people who encourage their sons to enlist in the army and hate those who don't stand for the anthem. They could have managed the shock if it only involved the government. But the behavior of the corporate press is what really radicalized them. They hate journalists more than they hate any politician or government official because they feel most betrayed by them. The idea that the press is driven by ratings and sensationalism became untenable. If that were true, they'd be all over the Epstein story. But they're not. The corporate press is the propaganda arm of the regime. Nothing anyone says will ever make them unsee that, period. This is profoundly disorienting. Many Trump voters don't know for certain whether ballots were faked in November 2020, but they know for absolute certain that the press, the FBI, and the rest would lie to them if they were. They watch the press behave like animals for four years. Tens of millions of people will always see Brett Kavanaugh as a gang rapist based on nothing because of CNN. And CNN seems proud of that. CNN led a lynch mob against a high school kid. They cheered on a summer of riots. Republicans always claimed the media had liberal bias, but they still thought the press would admit the truth if they were cornered. Huh. It's a very different thing to watch the media invent stories out of whole cloth in order to destroy regular people's lives and spark mass violence. Time magazine has told us that during the 2020 riots, there were weekly conference calls involving, among others, leaders of the protests, the local officials who refused to stop them, and media people who frame them for political effect. In Ukraine, we call that a color revolution. Throughout the summer, Democratic governors took advantage of COVID to change voting procedures. It wasn't just the mail-in ballots. 
They lowered signature matching standards and a lot else. Then there was Hunter Biden's laptop. Big tech ran a full-on censorship campaign against a major newspaper to protect a political candidate, period. Everyone knows it. All the tech companies now admit it was a mistake, but the election's over, so who cares? It goes without saying that if the New York Times had Don Jr.'s laptop, which is full of pictures of him smoking crack and engaging in group sex with lots of lurid family drama, emails describing direct corruption, the New York Times would not have been banned. Think back. Stories about Trump being urinated on by Russian prostitutes and blackmailed by Putin were promoted as fact when the only evidence was a document paid for by his opposition and disavowed by its source. The New York Post was banned for reporting on true information. The reaction of Trump people to all of this was not, no fair. That's how they felt about, say, Romney's Binders of Women story in 2012. This is different. Now they see, correctly, that every institution is captured by people who will use any means to exclude them from the political process. And yet they still showed up in record numbers to vote. Trump got 13 million more votes than he did in 2016. He got 10 million more than Clinton got. As election night dragged on, his voters allowed themselves some hope. But when the four critical swing states, and only those states, went dark at midnight, they knew. Over the ensuing weeks, they got shuffled around by grifters and media scam artists selling them conspiracy theories. They latched on to one, then another increasingly absurd theory as they tried to put a concrete name on something very real. Media and tech did everything to make things worse. Everything about the election was strange, the changes to procedure, unprecedented mail-in voting, the delays, etc. But rather than admit that and make everything transparent, they banned discussion of it, even in direct messages. Everyone knows that, just as Don Jr.'s laptop would have been the story of the century. If everything about this election dispute was the same except the parties were reversed, suspicions about the outcome would have been taken very seriously. See 2016 for proof. They understood... They understand why courts refuse to take the election case. What judge will stick his neck out for Donald Trump, knowing that he'll be destroyed in the media as a violent mob burns down his house? It is a fact, according to Time magazine, that mass riots were planned in cities across the country if Trump won. Sure, they were protests, but they were planned by the same people as during the summer, and everyone knows what that would have meant. Judges have families, too. Forget the ballot conspiracies. It's a fact that governors used COVID to unconstitutionally alter election procedures, something the Constitution states that only legislatures can do to help Biden make up for a massive enthusiasm gap by gaming the mail-in ballot system. They knew it was unconstitutional when they did it. It's right there in plain English in the Constitution. But they also knew the cases wouldn't see court until after election. What judge is going to toss millions of ballots because a governor broke the rules? The threat of mass riots wasn't implied, it was direct. And he goes on. In the end, Daryl Cooper writes, not every theory about election fraud is true, but Trump's voters, quote, are absolutely right that their government is monopolized by a regime that believes they are beneath representation and will observe no limits to keep them getting it. End quote. Why should you care? Why do I care? Why would I threaten to blow up any social cred I have left, caring about Trump supporters of January 6th prisoners? It's partly because no one else cares about them except a small handful of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. 
Julie Kelly fights for their rights daily. But more to the point, what I have in common with Carlson, Shapiro, and Bannon is simply this. I am sensitive to the abuse of power against those with less power. It probably comes from having been bullied as a child. I will always stand up for those I feel are getting picked on, even at the expense of my own social network and status as a former blue check Democrat on Twitter. 2020 was hard on all Americans. From lockdowns to mask wars to COVID to isolation, suicides rose sharply as did gun deaths. Mass shooters were radicalized almost overnight. Somehow people could understand how so many could spill out onto the streets for the largest protest in American history after being pent up for months, but they could not extend that same understanding to the other side when they lost their minds on January 6th. Probably the most insidious of all is the idea that people who call themselves patriots, whose movement is called America First, would be labeled domestic terrorists, insurrectionists, and traitors. The media narrative that they live in fear of replacement theory and are driven by white rage is false. For many Trump supporters, in a country that has all but abandoned them, all they have is their patriotic love of country. Now the one thing they have left is being taken from them, all in the name of politics, all because the Democrats and never-Trumpers have candidates who can't beat Trump. We get nowhere by dehumanizing each other. We need leadership to bring this country together under one roof before we go too far to turn back around. Thanks for listening to my Substack sashastone.substack.com. 